Well, this morning, I hope you have your Bibles open to the book of Haggai, as we will continue along in our study of it and with the time that we have together. We'll be examining the first passage in Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And in this section, we'll see the prophet's second oracle to the remnant of those returned exiles who, having left Babylon, have started slowly but surely to rebuild the temple. It was less than a month since the Jews had started this rebuilding process, and it seems where we meet the exiles this morning that they had begun to kind of take on that I'll get to it when I get to it mentality. Last time we met, we saw in the concluding two verses of chapter 1, that's verses 14 and 15, that the exiles had been stirred up in their spirits. The aftermath of Haggai's first prophetic oracle and had begun to work on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. The text tells us on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. But now, in the nine verses in front of us this morning, the people's enthusiasms for such work, well, it was beginning to decline. So, God is he's already done once and will do two more times after the one that we examined this morning. God sent his prophet Haggai to his people with a second prophetic oracle. And before we dive into the nine verses in front of us, let's quickly get caught back up onto speed as what's led to this moment in the book of Haggai. It had been 18 years since the decrees of King Cyrus and 16 years since the altars and foundations of the temple had been restored. It was then Darius who issued for the rebuilding of the temple. And many months ago, when we began our study of Haggai, we learned in verse 1, so that's Haggai 1.1, That in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Haggai first addresses Zerubbabel, the civil ruler, and then he speaks to Joshua, the high priest. And under these circumstances was where we first met God's prophet, Haggai, whose words urged the people to this work. Haggai was speaking to a people, addressing a people who had been struck with a series of poor harvests. Their economy had declined. They were facing opposition to their rebuilding efforts, and diligent they were told to apply themselves and their work towards the temple's rebuilding. But as we've seen in the weeks past, they were not diligent in this work. It's also worth mentioning that there had been no prophetic voice on record since the time of the prophet Jeremiah. And now Haggai speaking to the people of God, he had finally broken the dry spell of silence as it was to that restored community, one that had been foreshadowed by God, to hear his voice again. And how was it that the prophet of the Lord, Haggai, how did Haggai address the people? Sternly and seriously, systematically, he addresses the two men responsible for getting things done, all the while invoking the reminder of the faithful covenant keeping God by using the title, the Lord of hosts. The exiles, this people that Haggai was sent to prophesy to, they lived in a state of not yet, a state that inevitably was the byproduct of unmet expectations Expectations that ultimately did not meet current circumstance, reality. And even though the Lord of hosts had brought about their return from exile following the downfall of the Babylonian Empire, they turned to other priorities. They were then left waiting for some opportune time to re-engage in the Lord's work. And all the exiles had to do was one thing. Remember, they had one task. That was to rebuild the temple. That was it. That this is exactly then what happened after Haggai presented the word of the Lord to the Lord's people. 
It didn't fall on deaf ears. And in turn, the prophet's proclamation evoked a a positive response, as we saw in chapter 1, from the community. And so they got to work. But what happened? There was little to show for it except for confusion and disorder. But there's a reason for this that we'll see this morning. There's a reason for this, at least partially. Because as we're told in the text, we're now in the seventh month, which is worth noting because during the seventh month of the year, major festivals occurred and no one was allowed to work. But the question is, would the exiles, would they have worked had it not been convenient to pause? Or had they become prisoners of the moment, sensing the enormity at the task at hand? That's what we will seek to examine with the time that we have before us. How the Lord uses Haggai again to encourage his people to keep going. Let's now seek the Lord's help as we prepare to understand his word. Our God and Father, how we praise you that you have sent your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and he has revealed you to us and now speaks to us still in this portion of your holy word. Send us now, we pray, Lord, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, to take these words, to give light to our understanding, to apply them to our hearts and lives, to change and remake us after the image of the second person of your Son. For we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. On May 22nd, 1969, the crew of Apollo 10 was awoken from slumber to a beautiful voice. It was the voice of Mr. Frank Sinatra, who serenaded them with the words. It wasn't one of his best songs, nor was it an original song to him. Tony Bennett actually had it written for him, and he recorded it first. But it was to a well-known song, the song titled, The Best is Yet to Come. This was a historic day because it marked the first time that the lunar module flew solo in lunar orbit as it made man's closest approach to the lunar surface, to the moon. It made its closest approach to date. NASA knew they were close, that the best was yet to come. And less than two months later, on July 10, 1969, the three-man crew of Apollo 11 became the first humans to land on the moon. My aim this morning is for us to see that the people's weakness, those of whom the prophet Haggai is prophesying to, that their weakness alongside the power of the Lord are at the heart of Haggai's message of encouragement as he reminds them that better days are ahead, that indeed the best is yet to come. So with that being said, let's dig into the text. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. And as was the case with the first oracle, the second also begins with a look at the calendar. Numbers 21, chapter, or excuse me, Numbers 29, verse 1 shows us that the first day of the seventh month was the Feast of Trumpets. And in Leviticus 23, we see that the the tenth day of the seventh month was a day of atonement. And our text tells us that the word of the Lord came by Haggai on the 21st day. Of the seventh month, which was significant as it was near the end, the last full day actually, of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, the last and the greatest of the three annual feasts of Israel, the other two being Passover and Pentecost. Right, so this lasted for a week during which everyone lived in temporary shelters. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. These booths or shelters we also see in Leviticus 23 
are made of interwoven tree branches made in memory of the time the nation had spent wandering in the wilderness. Commentator Hugh Williamson, he summarizes this moment saying, the celebration of the festival or feast of tabernacles with its overtones of the days when Israel wandered in the wilderness would have been particularly poignant and meaningful for the people of Haggai's day. Because those taking part had themselves only recently experienced a second exodus from Babylon. For them, he writes, the experience of dwelling as strangers and aliens in an unwelcoming world and being given the land promised to Abraham was not something simply to be recalled from the dim and dusty pages of history. Why? Because it was the story of their own lives. They lived it. And yet the present realities for the exiles here in these passages, we see that a poor harvest was hardly worth celebrating. A terrible economy gave them no reason to celebrate. There was little to no traction on rebuilding God's house as it sat in disarray for 66 years after it had been totally destroyed, utterly annihilated, and burnt to the ground by King Nebuchadnezzar. And if that wasn't enough, the people's dwellings, as we saw in verse 3 of of chapter 1, where did they live? They lived in paneled housings. This provided them a comfort that all the more pressed them to find little to no parallel to the celebrated mighty acts of God in the past. They had little to identify with them. And before you all jump to conclusions and, and quickly deducing that these people to be a whiny bunch because I can get there too. I read that and I think, yeah, what are they complaining about? When the first temple was built, there was an abundance of wealth and materials to be used. King Solomon was a wealthy man who could afford timber from Lebanon and whose mines supplied precious metals to offset the costs. And although God forbid King David to build a temple himself, he didn't dwell idly in his paneled house, but spent time collecting fabrics for the building. Not to mention the Jewish craftsmen who likely didn't survive the years of exile in Babylon or, had they survived, likely lost their skills through years of labor and slavery without ever putting those skills to use. They knew the prophets who spoke of such a future in which the rebuilt temple would be far more glorious than Solomon's. And you can, alongside the exiles, look at the situation at hand and I hope say, yeah, I get it. I can understand how they might be a little discouraged. So it's here on the 21st day of the seventh month that Haggai gave his second message to his people. The Lord yet again sends his prophet to these disillusioned, discouraged, and dispirited brothers as they surveyed the enormity of the task at hand to provide not better tools nor more supplies, but what? What does Haggai provide them with? A message of encouragement. Look at verse 4. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. The leaders of the community are again addressing or address, excuse me, as the prophet carries out his task of relying on the Lord's message as he relays the Lord's message of encouragement to his people. Echoing a similar command that David gave his son Solomon at the time of building the first temple in 1 Kings 2, verse 2, David says to his son, Be strong 
therefore. And he concludes, prove yourself a man. As well as 1 Chronicles 28.20. Be strong and of good courage. And do it, he writes. Do not fear nor be dismayed. For the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Joshua also gave an encouragement to the people here in Joshua 1, verse 6, as they began the task of, of conquering the land of Canaan. What does he tell the people? He says, be strong and of good courage. The exiles here could identify with their ancestors who, like them, were told to do that task that they were told previously, to work. Matthew Harmon comments, the people are to be strong and to set to work, not simply because God has commanded them to do so, but also because he has committed himself to be with them. They are to trust that as they do what they can, that God will do what he himself has committed to do. Here the Lord says that he is with them and therefore his favor rests on them as a result. That their labors therefore will not be done in vain. As he did with both David as well as Joshua, the Lord here uses the same language to stir the people to carry out the work of rebuilding his house. Sure, the task is more difficult now. They don't possess the wealth, nor the goods, nor the tradesmen. But the same was then as is today. It's the same God. The same God who will supply the same power, as was the case in the completion of the first temple. Haggai's method, it also feels similar to the prophet Elisha, who when surrounded and trapped in Dothan with his servant by the chariots and the forces of the Syrian army, what does he reply to his servant in 2 Kings 6, verse 16? His servant cries out to Elisha, My master, he begs, what shall we do? And what does Elisha tell him? Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And in verse 5, we read, According to the word that I covenanted with you, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. How does he end that verse? It says, Do not fear. And this promise to be with his people is not a new promise. The Lord had already given his word to be with him back in verse 13 of chapter 1. But as we see here in verse 5 of chapter 2, God is reminding the people that his presence in their midst was the heart of the relationship that he established with them at Sinai in the time of Moses when Moses brought them out of the land of Egypt. That he would be their God and they would be his people. Exodus 19 verses 4 through 6 reads, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure, a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And he concludes, you will also be a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. A holy nation. God had kept his side of the arrangement. And here the prophet Haggai reminds the people that obedience to their God, not just in some things, but in all things, total obedience is what is commanded of them in order to hold up their side of the covenant. Remember the terms of the covenant Haggai is implying. 
that was made between you and God when you came out of Egypt. It's obedience. It's time to obey. Another commentator notes this lasting relationship. This covenant was sealed to Israel in the physical sign of the tabernacle. A movable tent in which God's presence would dwell in the midst of the mobile camp of his people. There, the glory that had appeared to Moses and the elders on Mount Sinai would also appear to the people. In the book of Chronicles, the visible presence of the Lord, of his glory in the midst of his people, it appeared where? At the dedication of Solomon's temple. Not even the people's lengthy history of sin, he's reminding them, could destroy the Lord's covenant commitment to Israel. Furthermore, this is also a promise of the presence, as we've seen, but we'll continue to see the promise of the presence of God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit had been with Joshua, had been with Saul, had been with David. The same Holy Spirit had delivered the Egyptians, or had delivered the Jews from their Egyptian captors. And the same Holy Spirit had brought them through the Red Sea. The Holy Spirit, the very demonstration of the power of God, isn't like a fair-weather fan who comes and goes depending upon success or failure. But as Haggai tells us, God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, he remains among you. He will lead you. So why fear? That's why he deduces, do not fear. I know you will. Don't. And to be sure, the presence of God's Spirit provided the assurance of ultimate success for the people's labors. And while Moses, nor David, nor Solomon will will ever return again, they're not coming back. The people know that the Lord's faithfulness in the past, by way of reminder of the Exodus, as well as into the present, will serve the basis for future encouragement to his people. And with the human effort now in place to get back to the rebuilding, the Lord then uses Haggai to display the ultimate background against which the people should view their situation. Verse 6 reads, For thus says the Lord of hosts once more, It is a little while I will shake heaven and earth, the sea he writes and dry land. And the final magnificence of the temple will be the result of God's direct actions. The Lord, through the prophet Haggai, instructed the people with the emphasis on the exodus to look back in order to see the divine help in the present as well as to see it in the future. The first shaking is connected with Sinai. The whole mountain quaked greatly when the Lord descended on Sinai, we're told. All nature was moved by the decisive coming of Yahweh God. And as such, it marked the start of a new period in the Lord's dealings with his people. So what Haggai is doing here is he's presenting the people to the prospect of this new era that is strikingly different as that instituted by the giving of the law at Sinai because the rebuilding of the temple formed part of the necessary preparations for the challenge that was ahead. And through the phrase, once more, it added to the emphasis of continuity between the Exodus 
as well as future blessings. Thus the Lord here is suggesting to his people that similar acts that happened in the past will happen again. He's reminding them that God had also done a fair bit of shaking in the past. He will shake the earth, the dry grounds. He humbled the proud Egyptians by the ten plagues. He destructed Pharaoh's army there in the Red Sea. And Psalm 68, verses 7 through 8, describes these events as shakings. The Lord has also shaken heaven and earth, sea and dry land when Babylon was overthrown in order to deliver Israel from exile. And God says that he will do it again in a little while. Now, for those of us who like to know when that is, our planners out there, we we don't know. But we can deduce some things. It demonstrates here with the prophet using that phrase, it is a little while, that Haggai's not thinking of our timetable, right? We need to know when. But rather God's timetable. It was Peter... In 2 Peter, who echoed Psalm 90, verse 4, when pointing to the fact that with the Lord, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Commentator Robert Fall writes, the emphasis on imminence has two implications. The first is that every generation must live in watchful expectancy. Every generation must live in watchful expectancy. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The other is that the event is certain. While we may not know when, we know that it will happen. It's not simply that the coming of the kingdom is tagged on at the end. Rather, that God has been working to this end throughout history. And I will shake all nations, he says. And during the next five centuries, the period leading up to Christ... Many empires would fall. The Persian Empire, the Syrian Empire, the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian empires, they all fell before the empire of Greece. And then it was Greece's turn to fall before Rome. And all these shakings served God's purposes to prepare the way for the spread of the Messiah's kingdom. And they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Haggai here is referring to Christ's kingdom. He's saying that God's chosen people from every tribe, from every language, every people, and nation. All will come and make up a great kingdom of priests to serve the Lord. God will fill this house with glory. The glory of the Lord and his people, he says, will fill this house. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. God made the minerals of the earth. They are his. The minerals are his. And he will provide from his own bounty all that is necessary for this glorious work to adorn the house. And the end result will be a greater glory for the temple than it had enjoyed in its earlier splendor. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Haggai, again, is relaying God's encouragement to the discouraged builders. They look around and they think, how can this be any more beautiful? It's been in decay for 66 years. How can it be any more beautiful than Solomon's temple? Haggai's saying, trust me. As one commentator put it, shalom here, peace involves an all-encompassing state of harmony. 
and fruitfulness. It includes prosperity, but it is far more than mere prosperity. It's nothing less than a total restoration of all relationships, including those between man and God, between man and his fellow man, between man and the created order. When the glory returns to the new temple and God once again dwells in the midst of his people, the result will be nothing short, he writes, of full salvation. Nothing short of full salvation. Those left wondering how the temple can be any more glorious than Solomon's are told that it will be more glorious not because of their own endeavors, but because God says that it will be greater than the former. And in this place, he says, he will give peace. When Haggai said, I will give peace, he's speaking for the Lord as his prophet, and he meant that it would be an ever-recurring granting of peace. Ever-recurring, forever. The temple is none other here than the blood-bought people of God. Listen to the Apostle Paul's words here. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you, Paul writes. Again, he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you, Paul writes, are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Brothers and sisters, how do we apply this text? I've got a handful of applications. In verse 3 of chapter 2, we see the people discouraged and complaining. Where do you turn to, friends, for strength and encouragement? In the laborious task of spiritual renovation. Who do you turn to? What do you turn to? How do you develop a greater hatred for your sinful patterns of thought and conduct? You look to the cross, and you see our Lord, bruised and broken, bloodied and beaten, and you are reminded of the cost of your sin. And as was not the case of the people's complaining in verse 3, you were not to take it lightly. Secondly, years later, the Lord Jesus Christ, he also gave a message. Flip with me in your Bibles here. We're going to John's Gospel, New Testament, chapter 7. Verses 37 and 38. On the last day, John writes, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Here our Savior spoke these words. This is the beauty of scripture. This is the beauty of redemptive history. Here our Savior spoke these words in the same temple which Zerubbabel was rebuilding. And it was on the same feast day that Jesus did what? What does the text tell us? He stood and he cried out. He stood and he spoke addressing needy souls. The Jews in Haggai's day were in a water drought. And Jesus here in John 7, he he says, He came to be that spiritual thirst. 
And what does he do? He offers the people not words of encouragement, as did the prophet Haggai, but he offers them living water, life. How much greater, friends, is our Savior? The best, as we heard from from Frank Sinatra earlier, the best is yet to come. And friends, if, if you are here this morning and you know not of this source of living waters, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, come to him and drink. Stop running to the fountain that one day, because it will run dry, stop. Come to him. Drink from the fountain of living waters. It's found only in the Son, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Those who labor, those who build it, they do so in vain. Friends, God is more concerned about the desires of your heart than the outward splendor of your work. If it's done in vain, for what purpose is it done then? He's more concerned about the desires of your heart. As Romans 8.30 reminds us, those whom the Lord predestined to be his in eternity past and whom he called and justified in the present, He will certainly and totally glorify, he promises, in the age to come. None of your labors or struggles against besetting sin will be in vain. For the Lord, those in Christ, the Lord is at work in your life. Trust this. Cling to this. Fourthly, just as Haggai's contemporaries, they could look back to God's mighty work at the Exodus and draw hope for the present, friends, so too... Can you look back at the coming of Christ as the foundation of your hope? And your reason for hope is far more certain than those of whom the prophet prophesied to. It's true. No one could look onto the face of Moses once he descended Sinai after receiving the law. Yet how much greater is the glory of the new covenant, of the promise to those found in Christ of hope, of eternal salvation. And lastly, that's where we'll conclude that this passage, as we apply it, this passage points us, friends, to a marvelous hope. Just as the Feast of Tabernacles was a time for the Jews to do both looking backwards as well as forward, likewise, we as Christians are called to do just that, to look in both directions. We do this every time we take the Lord's Supper. Backwards at the cross where the mighty work of Christ accomplishing our salvation and securing our peace. And forward to the shaking of the world that is yet to come. When God will make all things new through the glory of the Lord and will fill the world with peace and will reign forevermore. Friends, the best is yet to come. Please pray with me. Our Father, we bless you for Christ. We pray now that you would help us, Lord, to rest on him, to trust him, even as we turn together today from our sin and waywardness, Lord. We confess and repent before you, Father. 
we would find mercy and take Jesus as our peace offering that all the curses might fall on him and that we might hear the word of blessing from our Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. From your mouth spoken over us, Father. Hear our cries, for we pray it all in Jesus' name.